this week on the Backtable Podcast. So you usually can't give EBRT again to the same site, particularly the spine, because of the neurotoxicity. And we had run out of options. And my interventional radiologist came to me and told me, well, you know, we could do RFA and kyphoplasty on this. And I had not even considered it. So after I familiarized myself with it, I sent him the patient. And when she had come to me, she was completely debilitated, wheelchair bound, couldn't walk uh, from the pain, sent her in. That next week, she walked back into my clinic. <laughs> and the medical oncologist, when I sent her back, I said, you know, her performance status improved, start considering her for other systemic therapies. So we were reaching a point where it was about time to go to hospice and the RFA and kyphoplasty reversed our whole course because now she's out of pain, she's more functional, she can undergo more therapies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen or leave us a review on iTunes. We value your feedback, and we're always looking for ways to do this better. Today's episode is sponsored by Osteocool RF Ablation by Medtronic. Osteocool is internally cooled radiofrequency ablation technology that can be used in the spine and peripheral bone. Its dual probe capabilities allow you to approach a lesion with two probes simultaneously for tumor coverage. Know where the heat is going and map out your ablation zone before treatment. You'll receive a controlled ablation as the generator automatically measures impedance and modulates power to deliver energy consistently. Visit medtronic.com osteocool to learn more. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters and moderators only and do not reflect Medtronic's views. Today, we're talking about collaboration between interventional radiology and radiation oncology in the treatment of spine metastases. And it's an honor to welcome our guest to help walk us through this, Dr. Amir Lavav, a radiation oncologist at the Desert Cancer Center in Palm Springs, California, and Dr. Jason Levy, an interventional radiologist with Northside Radiology Associates in Atlanta. Gentlemen, on behalf of the Backtable team and our listeners, thanks for sharing your Sunday and your expertise with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you as well. Thanks, Mike. I encourage our listeners, if you haven't already, to check out episode 68, which we recorded with Dr. Levy and Dr. Bagla back in June. Sonny and Jason gave us a broader overview of radiofrequency ablation for spine tumors during that uh, discussion, and we briefly touched on the opportunity for collaborating with our radiation oncology colleagues to introduce RFA in conjunction with or as a complement to radiation therapy. And so I'm looking forward to building on that discussion today and learn from your perspectives on optimizing treatment for patients with painful spine metastases. But before we get into that, I want to take a minute first to ask Dr. Levy a few questions about the Opus 1 study. Um, Jason, you just published the outcomes of the first 100 patients treated with osteocool in uh, the November issue of JVIR, and the results are pretty compelling. So I didn't ask you to come on here and, and just read us your paper, but would you mind sharing with us some of what you learned in these first 100 patients and, and tell us what's still to come with the trial? Absolutely. So Basically, what we saw was, as you said, really excellent, compelling results in both the effectiveness and really, quite importantly, the time to improve quality of life, pain outcomes, and decrease opioid utilization. So we looked at these patients at three days, one week, one month, three months, and six months, and, and actually some of the patients were followed out to a year in this first 100. And what we we're able to see is that pain mean pain, average pain, and quality of life all improved at the three-day point, and then those results were sustained and actually continued to improve up to six months, which was really great. The other key points that I think we can make from that first 100 patients is that 
not a single delayed skeletal event occurred, which is obviously huge. And, and, you know, sort of one of the things we can bring to the table when we're talking about collaborating with the radiation oncologists. So those are the sort of the main key points from that study. It was, you know, although that study did not have a lot of collaboration, only about 5% of the patients had radiation prior to bone ablation and only about 10% had radiation afterwards. So, you know, uh, this was, that was not the intent of the study, just as the way our patient population was. Today, we're going to speak a lot about collaborating efforts together with radiation oncology, which I think is going to be one of those things where sort of, you know, all ships sail. We are, we have actually in this study, we've gotten up to 212 patients enrolled. So that publication that was just in JVIR was sort of a, a, a time in point on those first 100 patients. We will be looking to publishing eventually the results on the 212 patients. Those obviously the, the first 100 will be included in that data set. And I would imagine we should be able to get something out in the next few months. Right on. I know we all look forward to to see in the results of the next group of patients. So let's start getting into what we came on here to talk about. Before we address really when and where interventional radiologists can add RFA to the treatment algorithm, I think it's important to establish what we're actually adding to. Uh, Amir, would you mind giving us kind of a basic breakdown of the indications for, you know, EBRT, SBRT, or other therapies you provide for, for treating spine metastases and other tumors? Uh, yes, so external beam radiotherapy, which is, we just call conventional fractionation, it's where you give, let's say, 30 gray in 10 treatments. Most of the indications at that time, particularly from, like, let's say, the, the 60s, 70s, all the way into the early 2000s, was for any type of metastatic disease to, to any sites, and in particular, the spine. In modern times now, we're seeing that with the improvements in systemic therapy, there is much, much more bone metastases because the patients are living longer. So a larger portion of patients with metastatic disease tend to have bone mets. And there was also the development of SBRT, which they took very large doses and condensed them into one to five fractions. That one to five fractions is actually for billing purposes. It was brought in by Accurate uh, when Cyberknife first started doing this. So in Europe, you might actually see that they'll do SBRT to eight fractions or to 10 fractions. And this is where you're giving a very conformal localized treatment rather than, let's say if you had a metastasis at L1, conventional fractionation would actually cover from T12 to L2. But SBRT will only cover that sector of the bone with disease and maybe the adjacent sectors. So that's why it's so conformal. At the same time, the dose, instead of being something like three gray per fraction, will now go to eight gray plus for fraction. And this can span from eight gray all the way to 20 gray, 24 gray, given in one fraction. You're going to see across the country, most centers are doing usually eight to nine gray in three fractions, so 24 to 27. And the reason they're doing it is EBRT, the initial indications were for alleviation of pain and for local control. Unfortunately, with that dose regimen of, let's say, conventional, 30 and 10, the pain control usually came in terms of weeks, and the local control rate was only around 50%. And even the pain control was only somewhere between 50 to 80%, depending on what study you're looking at. So the hope was now with SBRT that we're going to have both improved pain control and improved local control. 
Now, the local control did pan out in both the American study, which was the RTOG, Radiation Therapy Oncology Group, and the Dutch study, which was the present cohort. And they both showed that you have above a 90% local control rate. However, when they compared it to just conventional fractionation, there was no difference in pain. So pain is one of the sites that we're still looking for novel modalities to integrate because SBRT wasn't able to achieve anything better than just conventional EBRT. Understood. Um, is there a limit in, in terms of the, the number of lesions that can be treated uh, either at one time or over the course of a patient's disease with either modality? So if you have diffuse uh, metastatic disease throughout the spine, you're not going to use SBRT because SBRT only localizes to one site at a time. And we're, we're fighting for submillimeter accuracy. So you can't say if you're going to have submillimeter accuracy across multiple vertebral bodies. Sure. So you never do uh, SBRT to more than two vertebral bodies at a time because there's just too much deviation in the spine from one sector to another. So if you have diffuse disease, you're going to get conventional therapy. If you have it localized to one side, in particular, when we enjoy using it in something called oligometastatic disease, mm -hmm. as in one to five lesions, no more than three separate organs is usually the way they, you know, different studies are going to categorize it differently, but that's a, a nice broad term. Okay. And the reason we do that is that type of cancer often has a different natural history due to its genetics or whatnot. It doesn't metastasize as often. And we found that going after both the primary and the metastatic disease, that we are able to get much greater uh, survival numbers. And yeah. oftentimes those patients, although they're stage four, we treat them with curative intent. Okay. And, and it, you know, that's of course in contradistinction to, to what interventional radiologists would offer with the RFA, but you know, EBRT and SBRT are effective treatment options for these patients. So, I mean, what can RFA and cementoplasty add to the established and you know, effective treatment options we already have. So I actually view what the interventional radiologist is doing as uh, another arm to add. So if you think about it, the medical oncologists offer a systemic therapy. The radiation oncologists offer a local therapy. And what we're seeing with RFA and the kyphoplasties is now that we have another arm, which is focal therapy. So what I'm looking for the interventional radiologist to add to what we're doing is number one, in my opinion, is pain relief because we cannot achieve it as fast as they can. We're in the weeks, whereas they're in the days. In certain instances, some of the patients um, that I've sent for RFN kyphoplasty, it's same day. So they're the relief from the pain same day, which is going to make my job easier and to compound their local effect and improving my local control rate. Understood. And so, I mean, generally speaking, what has your experience been with, you know, this treatment added to what we already have. I mean, your patient, it sounds like it's, it's worked pretty quickly. Yeah. So it was actually our, our interventional radiologist. One of the most important thing is um, for them to be integrated into the multidisciplinary approach. Easiest way to do that is through tumor boards. So we had presented a case in which it was stage four small cell has undergone all the systemic therapies we can. I've given palliative radiotherapy several times, and then I gave SBRT because SBRT can also be given in the scenario of re-irradiation because it's so conformal and so localized. So you usually can't give EBRT again to the same site, particularly the spine, because of the neurotoxicity. And we had run out of options, and my interventional radiologist came to me and told me, well, you know, we could do RFA and kyphoplasty on this. And I had not even considered it. 
So after I familiarized myself with it, I sent them the patient. And when she had come to me, she was completely debilitated, wheelchair bound, couldn't walk uh, from the pain, sent her in. That next week, she walked back into my clinic. And the medical oncologist, when I sent her back, I said, you know, her performance status improved, start considering her for other systemic therapies. So we were reaching a point where it was about time to go to hospice and the RFA and kyphoplasty reversed our whole course because now she's out of pain. She's more functional. She can undergo more therapies. So, I mean, how has your, your partnership with interventional radiology evolved since then? And, you know, at what point in, in managing these patients do you typically refer them to interventional radiology to, to assist with their care? So given that pain is my first priority in this situation, because even lying on the table for EVRT or SVRT can be quite uncomfortable. So if they're in pain, they're not going to remain still for this treatment. So I've been pushing it up front and there's multiple factors for that. One, to get rid of the pain. And two is that any changes that they make to the anatomy with the kyphoplasty, I can then make up for it on the back end. So if you want to do uh, RFA and kyphoplasty, either do it before radiation or do it after, but you can't do it during, because if you okay. change the anatomy, we have to do a whole replant. I, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. That makes a lot of sense though. Jason, what about you? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your story about developing this type of relationship in Atlanta? How'd you approach it and how'd you begin introducing it? Yeah. I mean, it was a little more challenging. We can't all have a mirror in, in our hospital, which would be great. I kind of approached it looking at it as there were really four groups that I was focusing on. So there was uh, surgical orthopedic oncology, there were the rad onks, the med onks, and then, and really frankly, the palliative doctors that a lot of them had in-house experience. So starting out with the palliative doctors was a very easy thing for us to get all of our musculoskeletal uh, ablation business going. And then sort of bringing the medonks into it. What I started out doing was I actually did, you know, one of the advantages we do have is, especially in the axial skeleton, is the ability to bring mechanical stabilization, which is sort of the challenge. And that's why I focused on, when we talked about the Opus 1 results, why I focused on zero out of 100 patients delayed skeletal events. So you, you simply won't find that in a radonk follow-up. So that might be something that can entice the rat onset so that suddenly their data becomes zero delayed skeletal yeah. events. Would you mind uh, just telling us what you mean exactly by like what's included in delayed skeletal events? Absolutely. I'm sorry. So fractures, tumor growing into neurologic structures, so nerve roots or the cord would be basically your, your, your major delayed skeletal events. Sorry okay, about that. Great. Thank you. So then sort of to keep some of the rad onks honest, what I would do is, is in a case where I was consulted after a post-radiation fractures, I, I would, you know, in, in a polite way, call up the rad onk and say, listen, this is what we can do for you, you know, and this is how we can work together. I mean, you know, if we are able to get pain relief, within three days, and that's something that speaks loud to Amir, that then we can, you know, allow you to have a more complete treatment and allow them to sit still on the table. Number two, if we can go first, then we're going to reduce your risk of a delayed skeletal events. And, and frankly, we can help you with your radiation failure. So there's, there's a lot of ways we can play together. And, and, and frankly, you know, I, I think 
as I finally started to get buy-in from some of the radiation oncologists, it was when they saw this more as, you know, less as a comp competitive. I mean, like Amir says, these are not mutually exclusive. You yeah. certainly can combine the two therapies. And, and there's, you know, there's not a ton of data out on that in musculoskeletal ablation, but there certainly is data out on that in the palliative situation. And I would argue this would be important all, also in the treatment, you know, curative arm as well is a, a combined approach with the two modalities. So that was how we, we approached it. So it was a little bit of slow uptake on the radonks until you know, the, the, the med onks started referring and then, you know, frankly, now the rad onks, they tend to come to me with more of those cases where greater than 40% of the vertebral body has a lytic component okay. or, you know, you know, the acetabulum and, and areas with significant lytic disease. Okay. Amir, is that about the same way you've approached it? Yeah, absolutely. Because this is one of the things is that, that they are not competing modalities. And honestly, you have, from a radiation oncology perspective, you got nothing to lose and all to gain. Yeah. Even if, if he doesn't solve the pain, but he prevents those delayed scheduled events. And that's something that like, I'm very cognizant of whenever I see these patients is I'm looking for after I ablate that soft tissue component, will the scaffolding in the vertebral body hold? So if they're going to have, you know, large propensity for a vertebral compression fracture, they're going to get the kyphal anyways. So why not do it up front? Sure. Yeah. I'm with you. Do your partners in your group, you know, use both modalities as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at our center, one of the other sites that you could compare this to that IR has a large role in is both liver metastases and hepatocellular carcinoma. Yeah. We're, we're constantly working together in that environment yeah. for, do we do taste? Do we do RFA, microwave, cryo, SBRT? You know, what size limits can we work together? Do you have a heat sink that I don't, that I can get around? So I think it would be very similar to that in terms of the collaboration. And you think that, you know, as you suggested that, that tumor board is a good way to kind of introduce this? Absolutely. It's the main way. Because we're not always familiar with what our colleagues are capable of doing. So you have to be there to be able to give in your input and introduce what you have available. Okay. Jason, you agree? I, I do. You know, the challenge with tumor board is, you know, I look at my institution. So we have hepatobiliary, we have breasts, we have prostate, we have melanoma sarcoma, we have GYN onc, we have, you know, we do, we are starting a palliative care one, so that might help gain uh, access to the palliative patients, but you, the, there is a little bit of a challenge unless you're at a smaller hospital where there's only one tumor board that the, the you, you sort of need that palliative care conference to, to help with this or a smaller hospital with a single, or, you know, what I've done is, is I'm, I am, you know, always at the hepatobiliary, uh, um, occasionally at the lung, but my partners in my group are aware of what we can provide. And, and I do sort of bird dog some of the cases beforehand to try to say, Hey, is my presence at this conference going to be useful? So it, it, it's a good and a bad to have multiple uh, tumor boards at your institution, obviously good because you're really subspecializing, but it, it does become a little bit of a challenge to get there. But, but I would agree completely. If you are not at the tumor board, your modality will not get receptive. Sure. I'm with you. 
is it is it really important to have you know Medonc on board or you know I mean I guess at this point really they're you know helping send the patients to the radiation oncologist so I guess that relationship is probably more important. You know I, I actually think my personal uh, experience is my relationship with the Medoncs is closer, and, and some of that it comes out from our you know liver therapies, central venous access, and, and, and stuff that we've been working with them for years with, even before we started doing bone tumor ablation. So I, I would not excuse the Medoncs. I mean, there are rationales that the Medoncs are going to want to utilize you. You know, one of the things is, is you never have to stop a systemic therapy for this, for this treatment. Understood. So, so, you know, taking them off protocol sometimes is a big deal for the Medoncs. So I, I heavily focus on the Medoncs. I, I think Radoncs are extremely valuable, especially if you get a progressive Radonc like Amir in your hospital that you can work with. I, I guess I, I, I would have to say I, I just gave a presentation at the Astro meeting earlier this month and, and, and I was a, kind of expecting to get some stones thrown at me and, 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 you know, I didn't even have to dodge one, you know, it was, it went very well. So I do think that things are going to get easier as, as there's more education, as people do understand these are not mutually exclusive and that they can work together, but I would definitively not throw out a relationship with a med on. I, I think okay. that is, to me, I think that is number one because there is a lot of coordination. Sure. This. You know, if you think about it uh, as an IR, I mean, I know, listen, what do we hear every day on, on, on our, our uh, SAR Connect or whatever you're, you're listening to, it's clinic, clinic, clinic. And, and this is no, no different than that. If you can't get a patient into your clinic with significant pain within a couple of days, I can mm -hmm. tell you the radonks can't. Yeah. And if your argument is that, well, look, we get pain relief in three days, that that doesn't work if you're seeing them in your clinic two weeks later okay. after the consult and then they get to your table a week after that. So, you know, that's why the relationship with the Medonc is very important. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, as you said, I mean, the timing of that is is something that's being discussed on SR Connect right now. I think you're right. Uh, so to answer the same question, yeah, I completely agree with Jason that you, you want to be connected to, to both arms. The, the only reason why I would say, let's say if I gave our perspective, like I work in a comprehensive cancer center. So Radonk is in the basement. Imaging is on the first floor. Uh, second floor is medical oncology. Third and fourth floors are the surgeons. But the only people who are not in the building is IR. They're across the street at the main hospital. So oftentimes what medical oncology does is because they're only looking at reports, they don't actually look at the imaging. They'll call right on and say, hey, can you pull up the imaging on this and give me some options? And so that's where I ended up being the guy who's giving all the referrals to IR. Okay. But I even mentioned the guys in IR. I said, you guys are linked to the group with diagnostics. You're the same group. So when your diagnostics guys are reading this, can you create a trigger in which you tell IR, hey, this is something that is going to have a vertebral compression fracture even after RT, or this is something that's going to benefit from RFA and kyphoplasty and just get them involved as soon as possible. The other thing to Jason's point that, that is really important is the not stopping the systemic therapies because with radiation, oftentimes many of the systemic therapies, especially classical chemo as opposed to immunotherapy are radiosensitizers. 
And one thing I don't want on board is a radio sensitizer when I got to radiate the spinal column because the neural tissue will now be very sensitive to the radiation and I'll cause demyelination. Yeah. So I often have to wait for a washout. And this is a nice time for IR to jump in and do something while I'm okay. waiting to come in on the back end. That actually makes a lot of sense. That, that was my next question was going to be, you know, for patients that are getting this procedure either after radiation therapy or before it, you know, what are the, you know, kind of ins and outs of the timing? And, and that actually makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, there's synergies with the radiation and immunotherapy, but there is toxicities with classical chemo, particularly if it's platinum-based. Right. For at least a two-week washout before I start to do something. And this is the perfect time for IR to come in. So what have I missed here? You know, any other challenges you faced along the way or any other tips to to making this work in practice for someone hoping to introduce it? Amir and I can speak in a second to, you know, sort of the timing of who goes first and, and, and it's not always IR going first, but I, I think the one thing that everyone should keep in mind is there will be just, you know, I'm sure Radonks feel the same way about some of us, but there will be that, you know, we have, I think 15, 16 Radonks. There are a couple that you know, I just don't think I'll ever get a referral from without it coming from the medoc. There will be that, you know, breed out there until there is, you know, sort of more combined therapy data. Having said that, you know, I, I think this is a huge growth field for interventional radiology. And I think we're barely scratching the surface. You know, we've been very involved in a lot of other areas, but we're barely scratching the surface. And, and there's, you know, minimal data out for curative intent, kind of like what Amir was talking about with SBRT. And I think we should keep our minds open to that. The Mayo Clinic has decent data on curative intent with prostate using ablation. Sloan Kettering published something in the last month about breast cancer or two months about breast cancer metastases, again, you know, multiple sites similar to the radiation oncologist, but we have to be open to that. But I, I guess sort of, I got off a little topic there, but I guess the main thing is, is it, just because one rat onc says no, doesn't mean the next one won't, even if they're in the same group, they're going to be very happy with the results. And ultimately, if the patients are happy, you're going to get more referrals from both Radonc and Medoc. Yeah, I would, I would agree with all of that. And like as Jason was describing to say that maybe I'm more of the progressive type. Usually when I speak with other centers about this or with other, you know, IRs, I tell them, why don't you bring me your youngest radiation oncologist in that group and let's have dinner. Oncology is constantly changing. And as I mentioned before, like even the systemic therapies, we're trying to get away from chemo. We're moving more into targeted and immunotherapies to, to bring up more synergies. So it, it's all a, a changing field. And I think there is a lot of opportunity for IR to add here because we haven't been able to make an improvement in the pain control despite all the new developments in technology and SBRT. Right on. This is certainly exciting. You know, there's a lot of good stuff on the horizon and I certainly look forward to seeing more of the data to come out of the Opus One trial. Guys, is there anything else that I missed? I think the only thing that I, I guess from a working together standpoint, I think once you've got a mature relationship, and Amir and I have talked about this in the past, is sort of like the who goes first thing. 
we have very similar practices. So in our practice, you know, if you think about your goals of pain reduction faster, reducing delayed skeletal events, then you would most of the time have IR go first with ablation and or some and usually cementoplasty. So that fits that paradigm. And, you know, obviously it becomes more challenging for us. If you, if you've ever treated a post-radiation patient as an IR, you know how many four-letter words you're saying when you're not using drill to get into that bone because it is so hard. There are certainly patients though that really deserve radiation first. And that's, you know, clearly the, the patient that has multifocal disease without a more local area that is the worst, especially if there's nothing that looks really, really lytic. But we've also talked about patients that have a significant soft tissue component. And, and is that a, a huge part of the pain generator? Because in our practice, we tend to have the radons go to those first before we go. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Usually the, the algorithm that you're using. So, <clears throat> so patients that come in with cord compression, that's not where you want to go with RFA and kyphoplasty. So, you know, number one, I'd say neurosurgery. Can you do something? Neurosurgery says, no, then I'll jump in and do something. And then after we get the soft tissue component off the, the spine, then you could consolidate with the RFA and kyphoplasty. Even if they're not in cord compression, we're looking to see how much epidural contact there is. What are the risks to, to doing RFA here? When I know the radiation can shrink that off and that bone hardening that Jason is talking about, usually it occurs four to six weeks post-RT. So that's when I tell IR, you want to get in before that window, before all the fibrosis and sclerosis starts setting in, or okay. your job is going to get harder. But those are some of the, the nuances. I think if you just get the program started as Radonk and IR work together more and, and share more ideas, everyone in that, in that department is going to get a feel for it. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you both. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us again. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us, guys. All right.